Good morning. Welcome back to the broadcast, Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Weekly for Saturday, August 13th, 2022. It's been another great week of shows with great guests and, of course, great topics. We kicked off the week with a look at small business opportunities to be a federal contractor. Let's take a look. Small business is the lifeblood of the American economy. and SBA has, since the 1950s, provided capital, credit, and counseling to America's millions of small businesses. Uh, we do so through our action in government contracting. Uh, there are tens of thousands of small businesses that work with the federal government through federal contracts. And we just recently published our scorecard for the most recent fiscal year, finding that uh, the, those small businesses received over $150 billion in federal contracting for the 2021 fiscal year. We're seeing, especially on the federal side, the small businesses came out of the pandemic stronger than ever. And SBA was an important part of that. Uh, entrepreneurs doing what they do, trying to find ways around problems were an important part of that. But SBA provided financing in the form of the Paycheck Protection Program and our uh, Economic Injury Disaster Loan Programs. And all through the pandemic, the government continued to spend. It spent more than ever on government contracts with small businesses. So what we saw over 2020 and 2021 in government contracting broke all the records that we had seen before in terms of the federal government working with small businesses to provide capital and credit. Well, the scorecard shows whether the government kept its commitment to spend some of its government contracting dollars with small businesses. The government has a goal every year of spending at least 23% of its contracting dollars with small businesses. And this year's scorecard found that the government far surpassed that. In fact, the federal government spent 27%, 27.23% in all-time record uh, of its contracting dollars with small businesses. We also, in the scorecard, look at how women-owned small businesses, disadvantaged businesses, service-abled veteran-owned small businesses did. And we found there that, for example, with disadvantaged businesses, the government set a record in spending 11% of its contracting dollars with those disadvantaged businesses, uh, which was uh, all, in fact, ahead of the schedule that we were looking to enact uh, for this year, for 2022. The government was looking to spend 11%, but we actually did it a year early. What we're seeing during the pandemic is that it's actually the disadvantaged businesses, uh, the category that, that SBA defines, that yes. have seen the most growth. And because of that, this working with the administration and our federal partners, SBA has raised the goal for working with disadvantaged businesses. We went to 11% for this year, and we're going all the way to 15% by 2025. And thus far, the government's been able to meet that goal as we're trying to encourage more disadvantaged entrepreneurs to sell to the government. And the, the numbers show the success. They spent $62 billion. The government spent $62 billion with disadvantaged businesses last year. Uh, Women-owned businesses also have a goal, a goal of 5% there. And then service-abled, better-known businesses uh, have a goal of 3%. And then there's another category called hub zones, which is our historically underutilized business zone program that additionally has a goal. So we're welcoming all of those businesses into the federal government fold and encouraging them to go after contracting uh, opportunities. And as, as you saw from last year, there's over $150 billion worth of those opportunities out there. Next up, retirement contributions are scheduled to go up in 2023 due to rising inflation. 
Let's take a look. That's right. So um, you, you, you're absolutely right that inflation is happening. I don't think that there's any way to get around that now. And, and we all know that. No one needs to explain that. Um, but what that ultimately can mean for retirees or individuals who are nearing retirement is that the, uh, the buying power that they have with the income that they've saved up or perhaps even the income that they are going to get uh, through Social Security benefits, ultimately that income is going to have a lot less buying power. And so the Department of Labor and the IRS tries to get around that on a yearly basis by increasing the contribution limits, the amount of money that you can make on an annual basis to your qualified retirement plans at work. And so, um, you know, prior to COVID fueled inflation that we had seen, these numbers hovered somewhere around the $20,000 mark. I think it was $19,500 before yep. COVID-19 hit us. Um, after that, for the last two years, uh, the IRS uh, bumped that up a little bit and said that um, contribution limits could be $20,500 on an annual basis. Now it's looking like COVID-fueled inf inflation is going to be so high this year um, that they could be bumping that up to $22,500 for 401k plans, uh, most 403b plans, and many 457 government plans. Um, now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because that means that, um, you know, for individuals nearing retirement, if you have the capacity to save more, perhaps you're going to need to do that. I know that that can be a really hard uh, thing to do. It ultimately means that you're going to have to sit, sit down with your your monthly or your yearly budget and and figure out how and 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 in what ways you can you can amend that budget to to make a little bit more of a contribution. But at the end of the day, that's important because it means that you will be able to stretch that retirement income that you're working on out just a little bit further. Um, anytime, anytime that inflation is happening, it means that the amount of money that you think you have is not going to be as much when it comes to retirement. And we don't know when the war, for, for, for example, in Eastern Europe is going to end. We don't know when gas prices are going to come back down. So if you're nearing retirement, um, at least in the short term, that amount of money uh, is going to matter a lot. Ultimately, a lot of federal agencies that are adjusting their yearly contribution limits, whether it be the Department of Labor, the IRS, even the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation that insures some of these big, big, big pension plans uh, within the private sector, they are ultimately looking to the Social Security Administration and the adjustments that they make on an annual basis to determine what kind of contribution limits they're going to set. And a number of, um, of crediting agencies and agencies, or even in some sec in some cases, some private sector businesses that monitor the Social, Social Security Administration are looking at how much the um, the cost of living has, is changing even on a monthly basis right now, just this year in 2022. And they are projecting uh, a double digit uh, increase in the cost of living adjustment that the Social Security Administration has to make in 2023, ultimately the numbers that we're talking about here, 2023, um, somewhere around 10.2, cost of living adjustment, which would be by far the biggest adjustment that we've seen since many of these agencies ever began, um, you know, monitoring this, the, the, the SSA and, and really before this, you know, this would be a, a record jump for the Social Security Administration um, 
by and large. So uh, if that happens, and we expect it probably will, because um, all of the data that we need and that the Social Security Administration needs to make these kinds of determinations, all of it except three months, three months worth of data is, is in. It's all there. Um, it's public data now. And so um, the only way that this would change is if, you know, gas prices fell, you know, significantly within the next couple of days. And I don't think anyone expects that to happen. I mean, sh certainly there's there's some ups and downs there. Um, but look, you know, it costs more to buy a gallon of milk and a ga gallon of gas, and that doesn't seem to be changing at least drastically anytime soon. And so I think that retirees or people who are nearing retirement, they just need to kind of get used to the fact that the money that they're saving now, you know, $1 now is not necessarily, necessarily going to be $1 in the future. And the, the sooner that you get used to that fact, the easier it is to make make the decisions that are sometimes really hard to make uh, to, to ensure that you're not running out of money when it when it matters the most. Well, we're halfway through our best segments of the week. When we come back, the other half, I think you're going to want to stay tuned right here on BRN Weekly. Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses. I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Are you stuck with a low credit score? A credit report and score that's causing you to be denied credit or pay higher interest rates than others for the same things? Then do what Terrence did and called Credit Repaired for your free credit evaluation to help restore your credit. I started thinking about buying a new house and my score wasn't where I needed it to be. I called and spoke with one of the representatives and we just had a good conversation and I, I liked what he was saying. Just one call for his free credit evaluation was all it took to start back on the track to repairing his credit. I'm seeing the deletions and I'm getting the report so I know something's being done. It does make a difference to me. All it takes is one call to get started. Credit repair has given me a second chance to have a better credit score. Don't let a low credit score hold you back another day. Do what Terrence did and make the call for your free credit evaluation. 
Call 800-819-4152. That's 800-819-4152. Again, 800-819-4152. Welcome back. And next up, retirement litigation pivots to now include passive investments. Let's take a look. So, so typically when we think of, uh, of you know, investments, which are fund investments, where we've got a, a manager who is, is holding a basket of things on your behalf, uh, we break them into two categories. We typically have an active category or a passive category. Um, so the active category is one where the manager has a strategy and the manager is making decisions to affirmatively you know, invest in something or not invest in something. And it's based on, you know, how they feel about it. Um, now, passive investing is the, the manager identifies on index or identifies something out there and says, you know, instead of investing how I feel about something, I'm going to try to invest the same way as that other thing. So the most commonly used example would be an S&P 500 index fund, where, you know, you've got the S&P 500, and they publish their list of stocks, they publish the list of, you know, weightings of holdings, and a manager says, I'm going to do an S&P 500 index fund, passive index fund, and if you invest with me, instead of buying my fund for how, you know, brilliant I am at managing, you're buying my fund because I'm just going to copy that. Um, and, you know, typically if we think about this, an active fund where a manager has to, you know, spend time and figure out what to invest in, active funds tend to have slightly higher fees Passive funds where the manager is, you know, really, you know, picking up the newspaper and saying, I'm buying all of those uh, tend to have lower fees. But so the distinction tends to be, you know, the manager is doing more thought work on the one side and getting a higher fee and active and doing, you know, more copying and taking a lower fee uh, on the passive side. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think you're, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head here. What the types of cases we've traditionally seen, we've traditionally seen cases where they say, you know, manager, you were doing decision making and you had a conflict. So, you know, you're picking your own, you're, you're investing in your own sub funds, you're buying your own securities, um, you had a conflict and that was, that, that hurt me as a retirement saver. Um, or you see with an active manager or wherever you see an allegation that, uh, look, manager, um, for every dollar you get in fees, I have a dollar less in retirement savings and the fees you're charging seem too high. So, plan fiduciary, you picked this fund that had higher fees, those higher fees ate away at my savings, I'm unhappy. Um, and that, that's been kind of the bulk of the litigation for really the last 15 years of, of, of fee litigation. Uh, and in the last you know, week and a half now, two weeks, we've seen a whole bunch of complaints alleged uh, that when a plan fiduciary picked a passive fund, um, that the, the retirement savers were hurt. And there the allegation is, hey, look, uh, plan fiduciary, your job is to find me really good investment options because what I care about is how much money I have in retirement. Um, if you pick somebody just because they have low fees, um, for every dollar of, of not good investment performance they have, I lose a dollar of retirement savings. So essentially, you know, go pick better options. Uh, and it'll take some time for these to play out. Uh, and it's it's also something we've been harping on for a while in terms of talking about, you know, the need to modernize the investments or the opportunity to modernize investments for 401k plans. Um, I think fees matter. And, you know, based on these, these cases, fees still matter. Um, but 
while fees has been kind of a simplistic discussion we've been having for, for 10 years, these cases could signify a bit of a shift from um, performance to this longer phrase that I think is better, which is risk-adjusted performance net of fees. So at the end of the day, if, if Jeff or I are saving for retirement, um, I care about fees, um, but I also care about performance because at bottom, what I want to have is the most dollars in my retirement account. Um, and I'm happy either getting more dollars by better performance or paying less dollars in fees. Um, but both of them are really levers uh, and, and focusing on one or the other could be, you know, leave me worse off. Now here with this, this fee litigation, moving to passives, I think we're going to have to wait and see how it plays out. Um, given the volume of, of cases that have been filed in the past week and a half, it's tough to see a strategy where, you know, a plaintiff firm could take all of these through judgment. So there's still some bewilderment about what, what the game plan is here. Um, but if you're a planned fiduciary, if you're a, you know, if you're, you know, an investor, um, it, it just serves as another reminder that, you know, just picking the lowest fee option may not always be the most prudent option. You know, the, the labor department, plaintiff counsel, uh, there's been so much of a focus on fees that, you know, and I, I don't know what happened here, um, but there's been such a focus on fees that it would be easy to see where a planned fiduciary would say, well, you know what? When we're, when we're putting together our, our list of things to think about, we're going to put fees as one, we're going to put fees as two, and we're going to put fees as three. Mm. Um, because that, that really is what the last 10, 15 years of, of litigation would encourage. Um, but, you know, this serves as a reminder that, you know, a, a prudent process involves fees, but it involves, it involves other factors as well. And lastly, ESG investments aren't designed to save the planet after all. Let's take a look. You know, uh, it would be nice were people to be able to invest their money behind their values and get both impact planetary impact and financial benefit. And it's a narrative that has been sold by many in the asset management industry for the last about 10 years. But it turns out that it's hard to do. And while there are instances where one can get that win-win, it's a lot less frequently than we would hope. Right. But following on what Ken said, the value that is being advanced in most ESG, ESG is such a big thing that it's, you know, it's really hard to put your hands around it, is advancing your own return. So if you look at something like the principles for responsible investing, which say that they're going to be principled by investing in ESG, the point of that is to increase returns. They're not saying it's going to improve impact. They're saying it's going to increase returns. So if you're putting money in ESG, the main thing you're hoping to get, and the main thing I think you are even being promised that you can get is, uh, is returns. Whether yeah. you get them or not, that's another question. So certainly <laughs> if you look at some of the, the back-tested investments that are made and, and advocated particularly by sell-side people and those kinds of companies, you'll see some returns. You'll see those graphs expanding and look, they did better. On the academic front, the, day, the evidence is much sparser. And in some cases, I think it's been overstated. In fact, some of the work that I've been doing has been to rein in some of the uh, claims by the academics. So I don't think we really see, we see it confidently on the academic side yet. I think that's a great point. Um, in the US right now, there's very little regulation over how an asset manager can brand a fund. 
And so you'll see that many funds have been labeled ESG are just funds that were rebranded from traditional vanilla funds. So a good example is Vanguard has a fund, its largest ESG fund and longest standing is almost one-to-one correlated with the S&P 500. It's just branded as an ESG fund. What you can be reasonably certain of though as an investor is that you'll pay higher fees for funds that are branded ESG. And so typically on average, ESG funds charge about 40% more than traditional funds, which I think also gives us pause and makes me think at least that over time, the returns will be less from ESG funds. There could be two sources of value. One is, like Andy was saying, ESG funds um, are based on, uh, are supposed to be based on um, the fund contents being better managers of risks associated principally with climate, but other changes in the planetary system. And so if in fact there are better managers of those risks, over time, those companies should perform better and you should generate higher returns. That's what's being sold. So one thing that's being sold is returns. The second is whether you are able to also advance planetary welfare. So maybe you wanna pay more for a fund if you think that it's going to help contain climate change or help reduce income inequality. It's our contention that in probably over 90% of the incidences, impact, planetary impact isn't even measured. And fund managers aren't compensated on the basis of being able to deliver impact as a result. So it's very unlikely that the vast majority of ESG funds are having a planetary impact. That's positive. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are two two big, big things. One is, it's important to remember that, and this needs to be regulated, or at least the, the marketing of it does, that ESG, most ESG now, is not the effect of Firm. So it's not like your money is going towards good. It's that it's just trying to figure out what risks you'll face as regulation changes and climate changes and stuff like that. So that's single materiality. And we need to understand that we also want to know how the firm affects the planet, both directions, number one. Number two is the measures are all over the place. There's some really excellent research to show that, that the different measurement companies don't often correlate very well on how they're measuring that first part, the single materiality. And we need standardization of that. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Weekly. Have a topic of interest, somebody you think we should talk to, drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest security news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content? Well, visit our website and our streaming partners. We're back again tomorrow for another edition of BRN Sunday. I'll be joined by members of the media, academia, and financial services as we take a look at some of the big events for the week. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes. Now is your opportunity to co-create content around any topic on the first lifestyle and wellness network. Reach a global audience through our platform and co-own exclusive branded content. All of our programs are available on demand and also as audio-only podcasts so you can take us on the go. 
Broadcast Retirement Network, available anytime, anywhere, and on any device.